Acts chapter 3. Let me just read a little excerpt from this passage that we're going to look at today and then we'll pray. I'm going to read from verse 12. It says, And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you thanks for preserving the apostolic witness, these disciples that you poured your life and ministry into, these men who you taught, who you taught to preach, taught to pray, who you gave authority to, who you gave this apostolic calling to prepare the churches, to build up the churches, to spread the gospel. Lord, we thank you for these words that we have of theirs, Lord, that we can look into and see just what did the followers of Jesus preach? What did they teach? What was their gospel? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for keeping it for us that we could have this confidence that we have the very word of God. Bless our study today, Lord. Bless the children. Help them to pay attention, Lord. Help Help all of us to, to think and treat these moments for what they are. The Word of God is, is being opened up and looked at, Lord. This is no small thing, Lord. We have, we have it so good, so comfortable, Lord. Help us to wake our, wake our souls, wake our minds, Lord, that we might remember the things that we read today. <clears throat> we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So... I'm normally going through Acts in Sunday school. So as I was looking at Acts chapter 3, I thought, um, wow, we're coming across another sermon. So I thought, what better way, uh, what better time to present a sermon than in the, the worship hour? So what we're going to do, Acts chapter 3 turns into a sermon by the Apostle Peter. So we're going to take the sermon from the Apostle Peter, and that's really going to be our sermon for today. So it's pretty easy for me, right? Uh, the sermon has been prepared. Now, we've been going through Acts very, very slowly. I promised you all that I wouldn't hold you hostage in the book of Acts for until kingdom come. So today we're going to cover Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. It's not a tiny chapter, uh, but it's, it's really laid out in two sections here. You have this, this miraculous healing, and then you have the sermon. So, healing and sermon. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, and it's, it's really kind of like, uh, you could say, like a deja vu uh, experience from what we just looked at in Acts chapter 2. You had miracle, the miraculous, sermon. So... There are some, uh, some distinctions here between the sermons and obviously between the miraculous that happens there. Uh, so it's not exactly the same sermon. It's not the same miracle. But 
notice the similarities because really I think the takeaway as we go through the book of Acts and specifically as we look at the uh, ministry of the apostles, the preaching of the apostles, their evangelism, um, we want to have the same message as the apostles, right? We want to preach the same message that the apostles preach. We even want to preach it in the same ways. So, I think that one of the big takeaways from these passages of scriptures is pay attention to the evangelism of the apostles. Pay attention to their preaching. Um, listen to their arguments. Look at the notice the Old Testament texts that they like, that they reference the the way that they prove Jesus is being the Messiah. Like learn those texts. Um, see the way that they call for a response and and what that response is that they that they expect from the hearers that they're preaching to. Um, All of these things, we want to be faithfully uh, preaching a biblical message. And so here we have faithful, biblical, spirit-empowered preaching from the apostles that we can study, that we can look at, that we can attempt to uh, mimic as faithfully as possible. So really, I think that's kind of the application is, um, first of all, believe the preaching of the apostles. Second of all, let's try to uh, internalize these things so that we can communicate the same messages and same points to the world. Um, one, one caveat maybe. We want to mimic the apostles. We want to do what they did. <clears throat> the obvious uh, caveat here is that, these, that Peter is ministering to Jews. These Jews know their Bibles, right? So... You know, they're quoting the Old Testament. They're making biblical arguments. These Jews know their Bibles. These Jews know who God is. So there's definitely a connection that they already have. There's a grounding, a foundation in the Bible that these Jews already have. When we do our evangelism, obviously, there's a little more groundwork maybe that we have to do um, in kind of uh, bringing people to which God we're talking about, bring to people to by what authority are we speaking on, what, you know, what scriptures are, are, are we speaking from. Uh, we have a little more groundwork than Peter has with these Jews, uh, but at the end of the day, our message is going to be the same. The, the message is that man has sinned against their creator, um, that God has done a, a work of grace in sending his son to die on the cross for sinners who have broken his laws, and the response, the proper response to what Jesus has done is repentance and faith. And really, as we go through the book of Acts, you go through these sermons, that's really, I mean, it's, it's that simple. It's that straightforward. So in one sense, uh, be convinced as we go through these sermons that that is the uh, faithful gospel presentation, sin, what Christ has done, and the proper response. Real, very simple, very basic, but this is what the apostles preached. And so... Uh, just be resolved that this is to be your message as well. Um, a lot of people, um, you go click on YouTube and watch people doing evangelism, and you get a lot of different approaches and different messages, but you want to do what the apostles did. So that's what we're going to attempt to do. We're going we're to see what the apostles do here in Acts chapter 3 and try to do the same. Uh, one last slight difference between... Uh, what the apostles did and what we're going to do is that they could do miracles. So, little caveat there again. So let's see this miracle. Acts chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John 
We're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. Sorry for stopping already. This is very interesting. Um, the apostles are going up to the temple. This is 3 p.m. our time in the afternoon um, for the hour of prayer. Now, at the temple, there's three hours of prayer a day. Two of the three prayer times include a sacrifice at the temple. Um, the apostles are going, going up at the ninth hour prayer time, which includes that sacrifice. It's one of the times that includes the sacrifice. So the question is, are the apostles still at this time participating in the sacrificial offering and, and sacrifice at the temple? What do you think about that? You think they still would be doing that, um, participating in that? Um, that's, that's the question. There's a lot of ink spilled amongst the commentators on, wow, that's interesting that they're still going up at this time. But sh- surely they're praying. I mean, nothing wrong with the prayer uh, aspect of it. I, I think, and as we'll see, maybe God's bringing this about, that I think they're going up to the temple with an eye for evangelism. Uh, you know, there's the crowds there coming for the prayers. Co- the crowds are coming for the sacrifices, and what better way to transition into the gospel than to go up at the hour where these sacrifices are being made. And I think their points would have been something like what becomes Scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Just let me read that for you. Every priest stands daily at his service, Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Right? I don't think Hebrews have been written yet, but that truth, the apostles certainly had that reality and that truth. And wow, what a perfect, you know, correlation and in, 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 uh, evangelistic point to be made there. You guys are still doing these sacrifices over and over. These sacrifice has been made and God has raised him to his right hand to affirm, you know, um, we're going to see in this very instance, evangelism happens. So um, you also have to remember it's early on. I mean, Christ has just ascended. Uh, Pentecost just happened. And so God has not yet put his definitive end to the temple, right? That's not going to come for another whatever, 30 till 70 AD when, you know, God uses the pagans to destroy the temple and there's, they're not able to make any more sacrifices. That's a pretty definitive, this is done. Um, so we're still in this, tra- Acts, is stra- Acts is tough because you're in this transitional period where the temple's still going on, the apostles are still in Jerusalem, uh, a lot of these debates, I mean, we're going to get all the way to Acts chapter, we're in Acts chapter 3, we're going to get all the way to chapter 15, and they're still having discussions about the law and circumcision and these kinds of things and Gentile inclusion. And so it, it's, there's a transition going on, so we have to be patient and keep that in mind. So verse 2, back to the miracle. Now, a man lame from birth was being carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. 
Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. He fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. So much for like prosperity gospel, right? The apostles were running around with money. Um, But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Rise up and walk. Now, remember the fact that Peter refers to Jesus here as Christ. Jesus Christ is no small thing uh, to say in Jerusalem to a Jew, to call him Jesus Christ. I know... I mean, Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Jesus Christ. I mean, we read that so often in the Bible, Jesus Christ. We kind of lose the significance. Saying that is, you're saying Jesus is the Messiah. No small thing to these Jews who are still in Israel. Um, And certainly this man who's been at the temple his whole life knows what that means. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, Peter is saying, Jesus, the Messiah, the Holy One of Israel, the Anointed One, commands you to rise up and walk. Up to this point, this man hasn't showed any signs of faith or anything. He's just wanting money from the apostles. So I don't even think it's this man's faith that raises him up, although he is raised by faith. Peter says, rise up and walk. So this man hasn't showed any faith. They are referring to Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, And this man right here is about to get an extra measure of revelation and grace concerning the Messiahship of Jesus. Because verse 7 says that Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. How strong? Verse 8. And leaping up. He stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Acts chapter 4 is going to tell us uh, that this man was over 40 years old. Um, We were just told in verse 2 that he's never walked before. He's been lame since his birth. Over 40 years, this guy hasn't hasn't been able to stand on his legs. Um... He's never used his legs in his entire life. He's over 40 years old. And instantly, he has a higher vertical jump than I do. Like, I'm not jealous, though. But this is certainly a miracle. I mean, everybody here recognizes it. Uh, Look at the people's reaction here in verse 9. All the people saw him walking and praising God. They They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. It says all the people, these Jews, these faithful Jews, they came to the temple for the prayers. They came to the temples for the sacrifices. Uh, This guy was laid daily outside of the temple. They knew this guy. They saw him every day. They probably gave him some alms, gave him some money. Um, They all were eyewitnesses to this. And so... Just like the miracles that Jesus performed before the Jews, right, right in front of them, uh, it, it's undeniable. 
the, the power, the, the miracle is undeniable. Just like at Pentecost, you have the, the mighty wind, you have the flames of fire, you have the miracle of tongues. Undeniable. Um, all of this, everyone here is attesting to the miraculous nature of what is happening here to the point where these people start praising God. That's what it says. These Jews start praising God for this healing. Now, one last point concerning the miracle because I want to get to the sermon. That's where we want to get is to the sermon. Stop and appreciate and kind of renew your belief and your trust in the sovereignty of God over everything over your life as you kind of consider the reality here of of what just happened for this man. Remember, verse 2 says, they laid him daily at the gate. Every day, this guy's at the gate. Um, Think about how many times Jesus would have... Jesus was at the temple during His ministry. Jesus went up to the feasts. Jesus was there. Jesus taught um, in Solomon's colonnade. He, he, was, he was certainly there. Imagine how many times Jesus passed by this guy and did not heal him. That's interesting to think about, right? Like Jesus was there. This guy was there. Jesus apparently, obviously, never, never healed this guy, even though he was there every day. So in accordance with God's sovereign decree, it was to be, this day that this man would receive his grace. Not a day earlier, not a day later. It was this day that he would receive this grace. So don't lose heart. Don't lack faith when the things you ask of the Lord don't come to pass when you desire them to come to pass. Um, don't lose faith when it's not in your timing because the Lord is working at working something out. The Lord is working out this tapestry we call history and he's he's intricately doing things that we have no idea why. Um, the good news is is that on that day when we are risen with Christ and can finally look down upon history, we can say, "Oh, that's why. Oh wow, like that's amazing. I didn't that's why that happened, or that's why that problem came my way. That's why the Lord didn't answer. I think we'll, I think we'll know. I think we'll know on that day, and um, that's going to be a glorious day to just see how all of the little butterfly effects of our lives actually affected other people and, and how little faith and why we had such little faith when God was doing such, such things that we weren't aware of so one day we will one day i think we will really believe romans eleven thirty six that says for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen uh, until then we trust the lord we trust the lord so the miracles performed um, now we're going to get a little glimpse into that answer that we ask when we have troubles is, is why? Why now? Why now for this healing? Well, I think we get a glimpse into why now for this particular hearing, and the answer is going to be the Lord wanted a crowd. The Lord wanted a crowd to hear a sermon. 
Now, now we enter into this second part of this chapter, really kind of picking up in verse 11 here. We're getting to the sermon that Peter preaches. Verse 11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. That's uh, Solomon's portico is just this outside. It's, it's in the temple grounds, it's, but it's a covered. It's a very large covered porch-like area where people can gather um, in the shade. Jesus would teach there, just a, a beautiful uh, area for gathering and for teaching. This is where this is happening. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, that is the crowds running to them, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our our own power or piety we've made him walk? Peter says, why do you wonder at this? Sometimes I think these rhetorical questions are kind of funny, you know, I mean, you literally just healed this guy that I've known for 40 years and now he's jumping around. Forgive me for, for wondering, Peter, you know. Um, I think uh, Peter's point is going to be very profound, though, why he, why he can ask a question like this. Um, his, his argument, his point's going to be something like this. God has done something that makes the miraculous not just Uh, not strange or unexpected, but because the Messiah has come, He has died, He has been raised and exalted, the miraculous is to be expected. So why are you guys surprised, basically, um, is His argument. The apex of all redemptive history, and, and really history in general, I think the reason there is history, I think the reason that anything exists was so the death burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ could happen. That's why everything exists was so God could do that. Um, That just happened. So that might be a very suitable time for God to do the miraculous, to affirm uh, the, the work of Jesus Christ. Good time for the natural kind of scientific order of things to be rocked a little bit, just to, uh, just to affirm what just happened. So all of that's kind of my word. Let's, Look at Peter's words, verse 13. This is why the people of Israel shouldn't be surprised that the miraculous is happening. His answer in short, verse 13, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus. God, the God of Israel, has glorified His servant Jesus as a result, the miraculous. Um, it's the Jews' very Bible who said this kind of, is, is what said these kinds of things would be the result of the Messiah's appearance. Isaiah 35.4, um, he just got referred to by Peter as the servant. Isaiah is where a lot of that servant language comes from, right? Um, Isaiah 35 says this, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. 
and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Now that's the text that Jesus himself alludes to with John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist was kind of floundering a little bit. He says, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Jesus says, all of these miraculous uh, messianic signs, I'm, I'm doing these things. Like, go tell John, the lame are leaping like deer, the deaf are hearing, right? The poor have the gospel preached to them. All of that. This is because the Messiah has come. That's why the miraculous is happening here. So, Peter opens by referencing and giving just a little teaser on the good news of the gospel. He mentions what God has done by sending his Messiah. But now he transitions to what we call the bad news. And there's always this kind of bad news in any faithful gospel preaching. You, you don't want to leave out the bad news. Um, or the good news just isn't so good. The bad news is that man in general and these Jews who had the Word of God in particular, man does not respond to the revelation of God as we ought. We reject the revelation of God. We do what we want. Um, we do not listen to God. In short, we sin. Now, unfortunately for these Jews, part of God's decree has been that all the righteous blood shed on the entire earth from Abel to the Son of God would be shed by them. And so Peter reminds them of what just happened in Jerusalem, verse 13. The God of our fathers glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14, But you denied the Holy and Righteous One, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now, I ran out of words on my word count. It would have been too long, but if you just go through Acts chapter 3, just look at the uh, titles of how Jesus is described. Here, He's the author of life. Um, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead and to this we are witnesses. Now that's bad news. And that's heavy. Uh, that's heavy judgmental language that Peter is using here. And imagine being these Jews who have just now, he's not just saying, yeah, God did some miraculous things with Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, this is all in context of you just witnessed a miracle that you can't deny. Imagine the fear that would begin to set in on those whom the Spirit of God is working as they realize what is going on right in their midst. Um, think of, because Peter just said, the God of Abraham, Jacob, the God of our fathers, you are Jews, this, you know who God is. You know what his judgments are like when you reject him and you sin against him. And they imagine in their minds the judgments of God that God brought upon Israel, upon the other nations, for way less than killing his son. And that's what he's saying they just did. I mean, can you imagine the fear? I kind of think like, wow, like... Um, imagine if there were some clouds, some, some, some dark clouds off the distance. They thought, man... Is there about to be another flood? 
or they're checking their skin for breakouts, or they're wondering, is this ground about to open up on us? I mean, Peter's bringing the, he's not pulling any punches at this point with them. He's saying, you guys killed God's Messiah. So that's, that's terrifying in light of the context of, of, I'm sure they've heard of Jesus, they've heard of the miraculous that he performed, but they've just encountered the reality of these things. And so hopefully they are terrified. Um, I just listed out, just so you didn't miss it, as I read through them, here's Peter's points of condemnation. Number one, God glorified Jesus, but they, on the contrary, delivered him over and denied him. Second, even pagan Pilate wanted to release Jesus and realized he was innocent and wasn't worthy of death. Even the pagan Pilate. Three, you've denied Jesus, the holy and righteous one, and instead asked for a murderer. Four, they killed the author of life. He's saying, basically, you killed the creator. Somehow that's possible. They killed the creator. Five, not only did you kill him, but God raised him back up. God saying, ultimate checkmate. You, you, think, you, you think you killed him. I raised him back up. Six, realize there's 500 Christians um, that Paul references in 1 Corinthians 15 that all uh, witnessed the resurrected Jesus Christ. Jesus did, just didn't appear to only the disciples and we're just kind of going with their word. P, uh, Paul says he, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. They're all still alive. At, certainly at this time, they would all, and that's how the text ends that we just read, and we are all witnesses of these things, 500 Christians. That's a lot of prosecuting witnesses against you if you're in a court case, 500, 500 people saying that that guy you killed, God raised him back up from the dead. So when I mention fear, that's the kind of fear that would have been setting in on these guys, that they just killed the very Son of God. So, Peter does not shy away from, from the reality of judgment and, and it being rightly deserved because of sin. And, and we should not either. Um, we're not being faithful if we don't explain to people what their problem is with God, what the issue really is. Their issue isn't um, that their life just isn't growing so great or that they could be a lot happier if they become a Christian or... God will give them money or anything like that. Their issue is sin. Their issue is the the holiness of God. And you're not being faithful if you're not explaining to people how and why uh, they've sinned against God. That's a very gracious thing. They receive it as judgmental and ungracious, but it's actually the most loving thing you can do is explain to people, this is why you need Christ. You need Christ because you've sinned. That's a, you can obviously do that in an ungracious way, I guess, but um, the apostles do not shy away from the reality of, of people's sin and, and being that's why you need Christ, because of your sin. Peter, being a faithful preacher, 
transitions to the good news here in verse 16. He says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. This Jesus whom you killed is in fact alive and he's continuing as the author of life to renew life to those who have faith in him. That's good news. Verse 17, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers, which I stop right there. That's, that's a strange thing to say at this point, right? I just listed off all of the numerous ways in which they are very guilty for what they did. And then Peter says, but I know, brothers, that you acted in ignorance. That's, that seems straight cause he, he, strange because he just convicted them of very many uh, things that didn't seem to be done in ignorance. Uh, and for sure, this is not a guiltless ignorance. Um, as we're going to see in verse 19, this is an ignorance that is to be repented of, meaning it's, it's a sinful ignorance. But I think it has to be similar to the ignorance that Paul himself categorizes himself with. In 1 Timothy 1.13, Paul says of himself, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent... But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Interesting, right? Interesting language. Paul received mercy because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. I think all of us who have experienced the grace of God in conversion can understand this ignorance that you're under before you're saved. Um, you don't realize what you're doing. You don't realize what you've ignored, right? What you've intentionally or subconsciously turned away from, especially if you're raised in the church like I did. You didn't appreciate the Word of God. You didn't fear God. Um, we've all kind of been those people in unbelief. The veil's over. It's not a, it's not a uh, innocence because... We're guilty by nature. We sin because we are sinners. Um, but there is this blinding that's there. And until your eyes are opened, um, you don't realize it. Well, you don't realize the state that you're in. And so I think here Peter's really appealing to this really pitiful fallen state of unbelief that they're in. Uh, a pitiful state that God will forgive if you repent is what he's going to say. And so now, now I think there's really another transition here because just as in Acts 2, same as in Acts 2, where Peter quotes all these Bible verses, he quotes Joel, he quotes Psalm 16, Psalm 110. He makes all these biblical arguments in grounding his sermon. Here the apostle Peter is about to do the same thing. He's about to get into the Bible. Now, Peter's first biblical reference for his argument for Christ is the whole Old Testament. Verse 18. Notice this. This is, in, this is good. Verse 18. 
but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. That's, that's huge. That's a, that's a big, that's a bold statement by the Apostle Peter here. All the prophets foretold of the suffering of Christ? Is that when you read through the prophets, when you're struggling in your Old Testament Bible reading, are you thinking, oh, all the prophets are just preaching the suffering of Christ here. That's what I'm reading. Probably not. That's probably not what you see. That's a, that's a big statement. And that's a statement that should really shape your Old Testament hermeneutic, meaning like how you understand the Bible. What's it about? How, do I, how am I to interpret all of these texts that I'm reading about the Moses and the law and these judges and the sacrifices. What is all this about? Peter says all that's about Christ. The Old Testament is about the same thing that the New Testament is about, and that's Christ. Even explicitly, he says, his suffering. Now, this isn't the only verse in the New Testament that says that's how we should read the Old Testament. It's not the only one. Uh, The book of Acts itself, Acts chapter 10, verse 43, they're going to say there, to him, speaking of Christ, to him all the prophets bear witness. What do all the prophets bear witness of? That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Wow, again, that's a big statement. All the prophets are preaching Christ and forgiveness of sins through Him. Here's the big one, the famous one from Luke chapter 24. This is from the the lips of Jesus Himself. He tells those disciples who had stumbled. You know, remember the uh, the road to Emmaus where those disciples were kind of confused, distraught. What's happened? Like what? They they killed the Messiah. Well, Jesus appears to them, and this is what He says: "Oh, foolish ones." And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Wow. I mean, Jesus is saying it's foolish not to see these things in the Old Testament. And not just here and there. He says all the prophets. That's a pretty all-encompassing statement. Jesus says in John 5.39... Speaking to the Jews, you search the scriptures, referencing, of course, obviously the Old Testament. You, you search the scriptures because that in them you think you have eternal life. But it's these that bear witness about me. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures are bearing witness about Christ. John five forty six. if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Wow, and there's a lot more. Uh, that can be pointed to in that way. But this is, this is what the apostles, this is what Jesus is saying the Old Testament was saying. It was preaching Christ and Him crucified, the suffering of Christ. How is it? How is it then in a sense that we read our Old Testaments and many people can't even make it through, you know, that we commit every year, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, I'm going to do it. You know, when you start in the Old Testament and you, I made it to Leviticus, I don't know what this is all about. And you stop, you know, like you get discouraged. Um, I I don't know what all this has to do with me. You don't see the relevance, 
right, to you think, oh, this is just about this ancient Israelite people, but, I mean, what does that have to do with, with us now? We're in the New Covenant after all, so I don't, what is the relevance of all this? Well, obviously everyone agrees um, that there's explicit messianic passages, right, throughout all the, the Old Testament. You know, you have the, the famous ones, the, the, the Genesis 3.15, right, that first hint at the gospel where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, that first promise that the seed's going to come and destroy Satan. Um, you have the, the famous Isaiah passage, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, um, where it literally depicts Jesus, you know, being persecuted and, and crucified even. Also, like the, the Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet language. All these bulls surround me, these evildoers. So, I mean, you have, you have these very explicit passages, but for all the prophets to be speaking of, of not just Christ, but specifically a suffering of Christ... For that to be true, that, that requires a little, a little different kind of reading of the Old Testament text than just like strictly a, uh, a, a historical, grammatical, literal interpretation is what it's called. Like, I mean, like, unless the Bible says Jesus Christ is going to come and suffer on a cross, then it, then it can't be saying, but the apostles say it does. So your interpretation has to encompass this reality, and this is where... Uh, biblical typology comes into play. Typology is, I think, really the biggest way in which God speaks of Christ in the Old Testament. That's, that's the biggest means by which, which He does that. And once you realize typology is, is simply, uh, the Bible itself uses the language of types and shadows, meaning you're, you're seeing things in, in, a, in, a, in a shadowy form, right? Like, Take, for instance, that first mention of the gospel, the seed of the woman will come and crush the head of the serpent. Well, that's not too explicit, right? But there's definitely a, 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 a story there. There's definitely a picture that will become more and more clear as God reveals more and more that, wow, there's somebody going to come and defeat sin, defeat the devil. That is the Messiah, the seed of the woman. Once you start understanding this is how God paints these, these pictures of Christ in the Old Testament, a lot of stuff starts making more sense of why it's there. Um, all of a sudden, you start understanding why, and you can start seeing how this entire sacrificial system and the necessity for the shedding of blood and the repetitive nature of that is supposed to be teaching us, wow, apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but this shedding of blood is not... It's not enough. It's not doing it. Um, we need something greater. We need a greater sacrifice. Um, once you see that, that seed promise that's mentioned from the very beginning in Genesis 3, we'll see it's mentioned to Abraham as well, that his seed will bless all the nations. Once you start seeing, wow, there's, there's a seed to come, and you start reading your Old Testament, where's the seed? Where's he at? When's he coming? Um, these, these leaders, these kings, these judges, these prophets, they're great godly men, but they're, they're not, none of them have yet defeated Satan. None of them have defeated sin. 
Where, where's the righteous one? And so you start looking at through your Old Testament saying, we need a prophet, we need a priest, we need a king that is the prophet, priest, and king. And so throughout the Old Testament, you see shadowy forms, David's, these, these types of Christ to come, these imperfect pictures of the one who will finally come and be that perfect picture. That's typology. And there's me, maybe we'll do a whole class on typology someday and just kind of like how, how is Jesus and all the prophets? Like you have all these mighty men, these prophets, they all end up being killed, right? Like Jesus told those Jews, all the righteous blood shed on the earth from Abel, right? To the son of Berechiah, who you killed by the temple, they were all shed. So all these prophets suffered. All these, these, these righteous men of God, they all suffered. All that was pointing us to the ultimate suffering typology. I think if you don't have that typology, you're missing a lot of the way in which God and all the prophets were pointing to the coming Christ. It's a big subject. Um, let's jump down. I'm going to skip verse 19 now. And I'm going to tack that on at the end. I can't bring myself to just skip any verses. I know we're trying to cover a whole chapter, but I, we're going to tack it on at the end because um, that kind of fits under the category of, of our call for response from the people. We'll see how that fits in at the end. But let's jump down to verse 22. He has another, another biblical argument to make. Peter is quoting a famous passage from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22, because Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Now, Peter's been giving a lot of grace in this sermon He's pointed them to Christ. He has, in a sense, kind of blunted the edge and spoken to them and, and realized that they've been in ignorance. Um, but here he's throwing, with all that gracious speech, he's throwing another pinch of salt into the wound and he's reminding them, Moses promised that this prophet would come and if you don't listen to him, you'll be destroyed from the people. He just throws in one more quick, sobering little jab of the reality of, of the impossibility of rejecting the Christ, there is a judgment that Moses spoke of that you can't re- reject this. You must listen to this final prophet who is to come. I think Peter, uh, this would have been a special text for Peter, this, this statement of Moses, of this prophet to come that you must listen to because if you remember... Peter was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus, right, is glorified, I guess we can say. Um, He's transfigured before them. Uh, This this glimpse of His glory is shown. And God the Father Himself speaks from heaven saying, This is My Son. Listen to Him. And so Peter was in the presence of that word from God the Father saying, This is the One who you're to listen to. And so Peter quotes that Deuteronomy 18 passage saying, Moses said this prophet was going to come, this one to whom you must listen. 
So Moses, again, is another perfect example of this typology that I'm talking about because the prophet to come is to be like Moses. Moses is the type. Jesus is the antitype. The type is just, like I was saying, this shadow, this prefiguring character. The antitype is the fulfillment. And Jesus had to be like Moses to be, like, to, to be this promised prophet. And really, if you look at uh, Moses' priesthood, all these uh, facets of his priesthood can be seen in Jesus to the fullest degree. I just listed some that they were both. It said it had to be from, from the brothers, from the Israelites. They're both Israelites. They both had this, this child royalty as they were children. They were both called out of Egypt to deliver the people. They both represented their people. They were both intermediaries for the people of God. They both saw God face to face. They both spoke the word of God to the people. They both performed the miraculous. They both lead their people to the promised land, so on, so on, so on. But Jesus is this prophet like Moses that is to be listened to. And for good measure, in verse 24 there, you see in chapter 3 again, Peter, for good measure, says it one more time. And all the prophets who have spoken... From Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. Just another place where the the Apostle Peter is saying all the scriptures spoke of these things, of these days, of, of this work of Christ. All the prophets. So in case you aren't convinced yet that this is what the prophets were speaking of, Peter throws in another for good measure there. Um, Now, the fact that all... I'm swatting at a fly or something that keeps flying by. Now, the fact that all these scriptures point us to the suffering of Christ is especially relevant to these people that Jesus is speaking to because of what verse 25 says. All the scriptures, he says, all the prophets have been speaking of Christ and his sufferings. And that's especially relevant to these guys because verse 25 says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You guys, all the prophets spoke of Christ. Well, you guys are the sons of those prophets. You guys are the children of Israel. Of anybody, you guys should be, you guys should know this. You guys should see this in your scriptures. Uh, This isn't an argument that Peter can make with the Gentiles. Um, These Jews had the word of God. These Jews had the prophets. They had the covenants. They are without excuse. Their entire history as a people, their entire relationship with God through the prophets, through the covenants, requires them to awaken from this ignorance that they're in because of all the people in the world. The sons of the prophets should, should understand these things, should see these things. And you notice there he quoted one last Bible verse. He quoted one last text from Genesis. This covenant promise that God gave to Abraham that kind of 
really starts this whole people of Israel, the whole Jewish nation gets started out of this calling of Abraham and this covenant promise to him. And the quote is, And in your offspring, or seed as a lot of Bibles have translated that, in your offspring shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. Now, he just quotes the verse, but there's a lot to that verse. It's a very short verse from Genesis, but it's, but it's huge. And so, you really can't just quote this, this Abrahamic covenant promise without turning to Galatians 3, because there the Apostle Paul is going to tell us what all is encompassed in that promise. So turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me. This is, um, this is huge. This is huge. Galatians chapter 3 in Paul's explanation of what all is entailed in this promise. It's amazing. I mean, you talk about the Old Testament explicitly talking about Christ. Look how Paul understands this gospel promise in this covenant that God made with Abraham. Galatians 3.7. Let's read this part. This is the, the Apostle Paul speaking of these things. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture... There's one of those instances of that word grafe if you were in Sunday school referencing Old Testament. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what are the takeaways here from what Paul says about this covenantal promise to Abraham? Number one, Paul says the very gospel was preached to Abraham through this promise. That means the gospel's been preached since, I don't know what page Genesis 12 is in your Bibles, but I mean, it's, the gospel's been preached since the beginning, in other words, is, is the significant thing of that. Secondly, and, and more specifically, he says, Paul said that it's foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. That's pretty specific. How did Paul get that from in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed or in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Well, it has to do with the timing that God gave this promise to Abraham. The timing's important because really Genesis 12, um, Genesis 15 is where God repeats this promise to Abraham saying, In you and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. The Bible says that Abraham believes this promise concerning his seed and is justified. Abraham believes this gospel that God preaches to him. And the Bible says it was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith and believing God's... Abraham hasn't done much at this point. I mean, he's left, you know... Ur of Chaldees, he's traveled, he, he's listening to God, he's, he's being obedient in that sense, but he hasn't done much. 
But Paul's point, I mean, and if you look at Abraham's life, a lot of what he's going to do is pretty sinful. I mean, he's pretty much a coward. He kind of puts his wife in these precarious situations, lies about stuff. And um, Abraham is justified by faith and believing that one of his seed is going to come and justify the Gentiles. Um, but the significance of the timing is that the law has not even been given yet. Moses has not even come and given the law. So Paul's point in Galatians is, Abraham, the father of the faith, our example of our example in the faith is that this guy was justified by God by faith. The law wasn't even given yet. So the law doesn't justify you, wasn't even around. So that's that's how Paul can say this whole promise is 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 really putting forth for us the fact that God will justify even the Gentiles by faith and not by works of the law. Not by works of the law. Lastly, in that, and I mentioned part of what is the good news for us, because I'm Gentile, I'm sure most of you are Gentile, the good news is that God, from the very beginning, in this covenantal promise, is going to bring in the nations. Is that we, the nations will be blessed by this coming seed. Not just Israel, not just the descendants of Abraham. The nations are going to be blessed by the, by the gospel promise. So thank God for that grace that God has reached out to the nations. Now, drop down. Paul doesn't stop expounding upon this little verse from Genesis, Galatians 3.16. He continues to explain and teach insights about Christ and the gospel from this promise. Galatians 3.16. Now, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. It's a lot of language, but Paul's point is twofold here. Number one, The gospel promised back in Genesis 12 concerning the seed or the offspring is not primarily speaking of all of Abraham's offspring in general. It's it's speaking of Abraham's offspring in particular, meaning one seed from Abraham is going to bless the nations, that particular seed being the Christ. That's through whom this blessing for all the nations, this justification is going to come. Second point from this promise, we see that the gospel promise of justification through faith in Christ, again, has been there from the very beginning, before the law. Why did God give that law to Moses for the people? Well, there was a lot of reasons for it. It was to be a tutor. It was to be helpful. It was to be a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ who has already been promised. So in one sense, 
God preached the gospel in Genesis 12. I'd say even as far back as Genesis 3. He promised this seed. The seed of the woman who's going who's to crush the head of the serpent. The seed of Abraham who's going to bless the nations. From the very beginning, the seed's been promised that he's coming. The Messiah's been promised from the beginning. And everyone's been expecting and needs to be trusting and looking for that Messiah, that promised one. The law, it came along and was tacked on later. Additionally, the promise has always been there. The gospel's always been preached. The law was to show us our sin. It was to show us that we can't keep these standards of righteousness that are necessary. The law is to show us our shortcomings so that we would not try to find rest and peace and and, and a right relationship with God by what we do. The law shows us you can't do that. It directs us to that promise, the one who is going to come and crush the head of the serpent and the one who will be able to justify the nation. So all of that out of in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's a lot. I know it's a lot. It's a lot to get from that, but Paul says that that's what you can get from that, and so we believe it. We believe it. Finally, let's close on the response. So Peter's been faithful to preach the gospel. Uh, Peter had the grace to do a miracle, gather, gather a crowd. Um, he reminded the people of what God has done in Christ, that the Messiah has come. He pointed to the people their, their sin and their rejection of Christ and their, 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 their murder of Him. And he's, now he's preached the good news of what Christ has done. Now he's going to call for a response. Because there is a response required by the sinner to whom you preach. Like you can just tell people all the great things that Jesus did and who Jesus is, but if you don't tell them how to respond to that, they'll never really be brought into the grace of God and and be justified. So Peter, uh, look how he describes the proper response to all this revelation. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first for what purpose? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Turn every one of you from your wickedness. What is the blessing that God is bringing to the people? Really, it's repentance. The blessing of repentance. The blessing of turning from wickedness. Now, I wish that that everyone realized that that is in fact a blessing. I think... You know, if you do a lot of evangelism, you realize very quickly that people don't see the call for repentance as being a blessing. They interpret it maybe as we did before we got saved as like, you mean I can't do all the things that I love to do? And you're taking all the way the things that I, that I have fun doing and all the joys that this world offers. Like that doesn't seem like a blessing. But for those of us who have been saved, have been converted, that the veil has been lifted, like we see the blessing that staying away from wickedness is, right? Like we've seen the destruction that we, now we can see that all of that temptation, all of that stuff was destroying us. Like all of that stuff was empty. All, none of that stuff would, 
would satisfy. None of that stuff could bring us to God. None of those things, in fact, all those things just compounded our enmity against God. We didn't realize any of those things in our state of ignorance, right? Like, to what we understand now, now we see the blessing. And now we think, man, Lord, like, why didn't you save me earlier? All that life just wasted. Like, man, if you could have saved me in school and I could have evangelized, how much good could have, you know, could have come, we think. Like, man, it would have been such a blessing. But most don't realize the blessing that is in, entailed here in the gospel, that God will turn you from your wickedness. That's the blessing. So for those children here who, or any of the young ones who have already been given the grace of repentance, that as the Bible describes a gift, thank the Lord that you are avoiding. You don't realize the trouble, the heartache, the repercussions. I mean, the things that a lot of us in that time of ignorance and wasting our life, the things that are still in our minds, the things that would still come up that just trouble our souls, you're being spared from all of that by the Lord preserving you at a young age. So be very, very thankful that the Lord has, has done that for you because you're going to avoid a lot of hardship in this life. And, and mark my words, you're not missing anything. You're not missing anything that this world would have you think um, you're missing by partaking of it. Now, I told you, verse 19, I was going to... Verse 19 is, is Peter was kind of flowing in and out of the response in his gospel presentation. I was just going to pull that down to the bottom just because he's still in that same line of thought. And we'll end here. The, the, the call of, of response to the people for repentance. Verse 19 Repent, therefore, he says, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This is the promise of the gospel, that if you'll repent, your sins will be blotted out. Not only that, but that times of refreshing will come for the, from the Lord, that He'll send the very Spirit of God to you. And God is, is faithful to do this. Every Christian cherishes these times of refreshing, do we not? The Lord is faithful to bring these things uh, these, these times, and I would say the majority of the times, it happens at church. What we call church, it happens when the Word of God is being preached to us, when the, the, the corporate gathering is there and you're just renewed. Wow, all these people are, have the same life as I do, have the same hope that I do, have the same struggles that I do. Your, your spirit is renewed. You're, you're given this grace to have faith you didn't have yesterday right? When you're just by yourself in life. Um, these times of refreshing, they come in, into, in the worship songs when, you, when, you're, when you're stirred up to not just receive the grace of God, but bless God with your, with your voice and, and, and praise Him as you should. All of these things, you, you get these times when, when you believe the gospel, when you believe the Word of God more than you do other times, when 
when you're not afraid to die, these times when you're so assured of the gospel, you have peace, you have joy that your sins are forgiven and you don't fear eternity. These, time, these are times of, I don't always think like this. These are, these are times of refreshing that the, that the Spirit of God is faithful to bring to those who have repented. And we wouldn't make it without the Spirit's work. We, we need times of refreshing. Just like the apostles said, like they, Jesus, they were afraid that Jesus was going to, they didn't want Jesus to leave. Jesus isn't here with us like he was. Um, he sent the helper. He sent the comforter. And that's who's, who's here to help us finish this race. And so the gospel message, as you preach it, is it isn't simply about, about avoiding judgment or the horrors of hell. We, we definitely warn people of that. But we can preach the, uh, the, the, the positive uh, blessings of coming to Christ. And it's not money. It's not an easy life. None of these people had easy lives like that. The promise is that God himself will come to you and send these times of refreshing. People need, that's a good motive for somebody to come to, come to Christ. Not just, I think you should come to Christ to avoid judgment, certainly. But it's a sweet uh, reason to come to Christ to get these blessings that God is, to trust God that if I come to Christ, he's going to send the Spirit and I'm going to have times of refreshing. He's going to bless me. He's going to... He's going to take care of me. He's going to carry me to the end. Um, that's, that's a blessing that we can offer to people. Nothing wrong. Peter, it's obviously not wrong. Peter offers it to these Jews here that if they'll repent, that times of refreshing will come from the Lord. So that's the sermon. That's chapter 3. We, we did it. Somehow, some way. I lost track of time, so who, I have no clue. Forgive me if it went, it went long, but... The takeaway, as I started, when we, when we go through the book of Acts, Lord willing, we'll continue. The takeaway is to, first of all, as you read the preaching of the apostles, if you, as you see their lives, believe the preach, believe the word of God. That's what it is. It's the word of God. Believe it, and then find yourself trying to understand it and, and, and be able to articulate the gospel in a similar fashion in a similar way like these examples are here for us that's that's i think why god left these things for us so we can see what is the faithful presentation of what jesus did that's what the apostles were there for god has been faithful to leave these things here for us and as we just saw peter preached what god has done through christ he preached the sinfulness of man and he preached the proper response that people should have to what christ has done and that's Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. So if you need to reconvince yourselves just once again that this is a faithful presentation of the gospel, you'll get many challenges. Unbelievers don't want to hear about their sin. They don't even want to say they don't believe in God. Believers will say, hey, why are y'all preaching sin? Why are y'all preaching judgment? Just tell people God loves them. You're going to get challenges from everyone, but convince yourself this is the faithful gospel presentation and be found faithful to share that with others so let's pray well father i i just want to say thank you again for your word
Thank you that we have the words of the apostles that we can look to to see what, what is a faithful presentation of, of what your Son has done. We want to be faithful to Christ. We, we want to preach Him as He deserves. We want our message to be glorifying to you. And so we thank you that we have so many presentations of Christ in, in the book of Acts that we can turn to. Lord, help us to be faithful in our presentation of the gospel. Lord, help the unbelievers in our midst to be convinced by, wow, so many Bible verses, Lord. So, so much revelation, Lord. You, you foretold by the mouth of all the prophets these things, Lord. There's no excuse to not submit to the reality that Jesus is the Christ, Lord. So give grace to the hearers. We thank you. Bless our meeting today, Lord. Bless Tafik, bring him back to us safely. Bless that church where he's speaking. Let him be a blessing to them. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.